Yeah, I'm a little curious about the guy who gave you the the Michael Parenti and like the other things people have given you at the bar. Um, uh, let's see, let's see, what have I got at the bar? I mean, I've gotten a lot of food. Nice. Uh, I think the best thing that I ever got though was uh, uh, this is one gentleman that comes in. He's a hard worker. He's like a maintenance guy, and he's really proud of his work. And then after having a couple of uh, conversations with him, one day he comes into the bar, orders a bunch of beers, leaves without paying. And then walks back into the bar carrying a beautiful Ibanez hollow body electric guitar with hum, was it humbucker pickups completely rebuilt. He like sanded down the neck, like perfected all the fret placement. The actions on it are crazy tight and low. Um, it's tuned like the, the sounds kind of engineered to sound like a like ZZ Tops electric guitar. Nice. Um, really specific tone that he's going for. And he was like, when I see you and I see this guitar, they're meant to be together. And he tipped me his guitar at the end of the night. That's which awesome. Is wild. Yeah, I went home with a guitar. Have you played it yet? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, I have it in my office. I love looking at it. It's awesome. I felt really weird. Would you take a guitar from a stranger? Uh, probably not a total stranger, but this person isn't a stranger, right? They're a customer. Oh, that's true. That's true. I guess what constitutes a stranger? I'm not sure. Has he come back? Oh, Are yeah. He... Yeah, yeah. He's there every day. Giving you a guitar is huge. I... I guess there isn't like a code of conduct. Like you can't like refuse things, right? I mean, people. Oh. I mean, there is like I, I did tell him when he first tried to offer it to me. I was like, dude, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna kiss you in the parking lot. I'm not sure what you expect from this. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. It's weird. It's weird. Yeah, this. I mean, we just finished recording that episode about uh, transference, which was awesome to listen to. Loved it. Um, it was good times. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it when I see it. It's definitely obvious. Like that definitely feels obvious. People crying in a public space like that feels obvious. Yeah. The day-to-day interactions, I'm a little bit less sure about. I'm not sure if I can spot it when it's popping up or maybe it's just always popping up. Yeah. Maybe that's what it is. I I think like the that's I think like the like the field of thinking of it as like the gravitational field or is, is like the the space in which other relationships are going to ha- like that's how people relate. Right? I think that might be the the kind of one way to, to wrap our heads around it, that it's like, this is how you, you can't not, but well, I'll use your analogy. You can't not, but go to a website without having those cookies in your browser. Yeah. Right. Right. That's it's. And I think that's part of the, I think there's a kind of like a glass half empty way of, of talking about some of the stuff we, we touched on. And this might be a way to do just the wild analysis. I would just comment on what we're talking about. I think it's a post like a wrap up or a debrief session. Like, where it's like you're like, well, nothing is real, no relationships are real. How do we not, you know, if I'm if I'm only ever bringing to bear my expectations of what a loving partner would be because of my variously loving or insufficiently loving or overly loving or whatever parental interjects to use that fancy word, like then there is no such thing as a real relationship. But I think that's what you gotta fuck I'll invoke a little Lacan here uh, before we even get into them on, on the main. I guess, but like it's it's like the idea of like being not thinking you're better than that kind of like transaction or like that there isn't outside of it is that's the real like that's when you're really deep in the ideology, right? That's when you're really deep in in, in the error. So like I think like <laughs> if if transference is like if all the ways we relate involve some degree of transference, then the question isn't like is there a way to relate outside of it? It's just how do we relate to the transference and how do we relate to those relationships differently, right? It's it's not like there's an inauthentic way of um, or it's not, it's not like there's an authentic way outside of that. 
I think, right? Is, is, I mean, yeah. The usefulness is the term. Like the yeah. usefulness is the language that lets me button up things that now I can observe because I have a title for it, where previously I just drank it without asking what it was. Yeah. I think that's the like, there is that feeling of like the, and I think the gravity metaphor is really helpful because it's like, you do have sometimes encounters with people where it's like, you get sucked in without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think like, um, and this is maybe another example that we, we could have given earlier, but we can talk about now. Like if, if you're like in other encounters that involve some degree of disinhibition, whether alcohol or, 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 or sex or something like where there's like a, you let down certain things or you, you move into a different mode. It, it's not surprising that your previous experiences in those states would come back up. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm thinking about like, uh, or, or, or in relationships where there's a lot of intimacy, like or where you're just starting out, where suddenly you have to talk about the previous partners if you had, or, or rather you, you, you immediately have some expectations that this person is going to leave you or that you're um, going to lose interest or something. I, I don't even know. I'm, I'm, I'm manufacturing ideas here, but like the idea that like you, once you enter into the space, suddenly those old things come back with a vengeance. Because right. you're out of that space for so long, those things are now tamped down uh, repressed. Yeah. And then you enter in that relationship, those things bubble back up. Yeah. Like, like as a d- defense mechanism. Is, yeah. is, that's really what this is, right? Is, isn't yeah. transference a kind of emotional shield that you're not really aware that you're holding up? I think, I mean, there is some utility to think about, uh, to thinking about the, the defenses or of like the, what is transference sort of, what is our capacity to, 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 to be, I guess like transferential beings, we want to talk about that, like in, in those terms, what does that gain us? I mean, like, yeah, like you, you have certain, like it, it makes sense that we learn the patterns of our caregiver, mm. right? It, it makes sense because we depend on them for care. Um, it also makes sense that we would, you know, in the ways in which they are necessarily insufficient or they frustrate us or they disappoint us, that we would expect that to be mirrored elsewhere or we would react against that in a certain way, right? Like, so to the extent to which like we are interdependent people, interdependent beings, we depend on one another for things uh, materially, it would not make any sense for us to approach people every single time, be like, oh, this is a totally new relationship. It's like, I'm thinking about like uh, people who are have some sort of like neurological injury or something where they're always meeting people for a new time. Like, like that, that's not a- Dory from Finding Nemo. Yeah, exactly. If you have anterograde and amnesia or whatever, like that's not a, that's a difficult spot to be in, right? Yep. There, there's yep. some degree of like, that's clearly, I don't think that's a- I wouldn't, you could see how that would cause problems. The inability to approach a scenario without some kind of predetermination would actually be more difficult yeah. than having to deal with all this transference nonsense. Yeah. You couldn't, I mean, the way you relate is through previous relationships, yep. right? Yep. It's, it's, it's like a, another metaphor we might use might be language, right? Like is this, you learn to speak a language and you learn, and then your other encounters with people are, are mediated through that language, right? So, so I think that may be another sort of way for us to get to, to sort of, think about this, right? That like your, your expectations, your, your dread, your previous experiences of fulfillment are like, uh, they loom large and they're activated in every encounter. And you can see though too, like how like the repetitions like, and this is I think true of, it's particularly true of trauma too, where it's like you get, something happens to you, an encounter happens to you or, or some of that happens, befalls you to use a language like that. And you get so worried about it happening again that you, um, you, you know, you're haunted by that worry and that affects your other relationships. Like think about like the people who are like, well, I was betrayed once 
therefore, in a relationship, therefore I am now never going to let anyone get close to me or I will become the betrayer in every relationship, right? So you suddenly hit, like, you had this encounter of someone who loomed large failing you or not being there and such that now, like, every, uh, and, and this is another metaphor here that might be helpful, like the shadow, every other new relationship you forge is happening under that shadow. It casts a long shadow. And, you know, you could see how it's protective, right? You you were betrayed once. It would make sense that you would not want to be betrayed again. But, and this is sort of the paradox or the tragedy of certain types of traumatic repetition, you set yourself up to either be betrayed again because you're like assuming that every relationship is going to be the same or the, you're kind of like are uh, looking for that again actively because that's a source of pleasure and it's familiar or you deny yourself those relationships. Either way, it's overly determinative, right? It's overly, it waits your, it predisposes you. The world is a massive, foggy, difficult to understand place. So you turn to the only map that you have, which is a retreading of the experiences you've already had. Yeah. And we're attached to it. But like, I think that's like this idea, like the Canyon idea, like being, enjoy, being like enjoying your symptom or like not fully enjoying it. Like you, you get wedded to it, you know, and that becomes like a template. <laughs> it's like the, the person that is excited to talk about how well they think they figured the world out. Yeah. They, it's actually that they're in love with how they've handled or how they think they've handled the experiences they've had this far. Yeah. That's weird to think about. It's weird to think about. It's like the thing you have, you know, and I think that's like part of the, the part of the difficulty is like, I think about the analogy we use in the episode of like the person who's like, oh, I'm falling in love with a new person. It's a totally new thing. Right. When in fact it's the same thing. Right. And yeah. you know, you, without getting into any type of like, what's the advice you would give this person as a friend, you can see how like, well, you, that's how you've fallen in love before. And love is, love can feel good, right? Or love, love sort of axiomatically feels good, I guess. Uh, but also like you, you expect certain things, you're attached to it, right? You're attached to the condition, you're, you're attached to what's predictable, you're attached to, I mean, how we get real real with this. Like people get attached to people who abuse them, right? Because like, I mean, that's a, one of the things that, that happens to, you know, abuse coming from early caregivers or people you're close to, right? You, so you associate what's familiar with, with, you know, what you want and what you want is what's familiar. And, and so you, you reproduce that. I read a um, comparison between Freud, Freudian and Lacanian transference mm. where Freud was positioned as being obsessed with the affect of transference. Whereas Lacan was, and you can correct me if I'm misremembering mm. this, Lacan was more focused on object alignment between the two parties. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think that that's, that that's that sounds accurate to me. I know that Lacan has an entire seminar on transference, which yeah. I don't. No, summarize it right now. I, yeah, right, fine. Fuck, it's been so um, <laughs> Let's bust out a Crete. <laughs> I kind of do want to look at. Yeah, I kind of do want to look, at, but but it is like a. I don't. We'll get a Lacanian clinician on here to talk about it. I think we can we can assemble a list of these things. I don't really remember even like how the Lacanian thing looks. I know there is that volume. Um, this is, I guess we're just talking now, but this probably isn't content for the thing, but, but there was that uh, in the, in the folder for our, for this episode, I put a copy of this really cool book, which is from the Karnak series of, uh, for, it's like commentary on different things and commentary on different. So there's every single one of Freud's or every one of Freud's prominent articles has this book of commentary. So there's one in there that's like, here's what different perspectives are on this. Gotcha. So that would give you like, that would give you a Lacanian transfer. Oh, that'd be interesting. Yeah. I feel like the, the, I, I really enjoyed reading about it from all the different traditions because yeah. uh, I, I don't, not sure that anyone, I, I, you've been more 
soaked in this than I have been for longer, but um, it feels to me like the truth is in the difference between them. Yeah, somehow. I think that's... They're all kind of circling something that they haven't found words for yet. Yeah, I, and I think that this is a thing we're probably going to wind up talking about a lot, where, where it's, it's like these are all different perspectives on like really overdetermined phenomena, right? So of course they're going to be, you know, they're going to be plurality of perspectives, but also like the, there's going to be this eternal question, a really recurrent question of like the gaps between like how different clinicians or theoretical thinkers will explain what they do outside of a session versus what they actually do in the session. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm not saying that there aren't substantive differences between like how different individuals or different people, different and different schools approach clinical psychoanalysis, but that like sometimes you got to wonder if a lot of the distinctions are, that people insist upon theoretically between different schools or between different modes of practice are actually uh, secondary to kind of like basic things, right? Like namely you don't interrupt the other person when they're talking, Mm -hmm. right? You, you show up, you listen to them, you offer some interpretations, you offer, uh, you're just there and as a containing environment, predictably, right? When they are in distress, you respond, one way or another, or you don't respond in a way that is itself a type of response, right? You know what I mean? It, yeah. So some people might be like, well, I, I did a transference-based analysis of the parental, like, imago as being, as it was being dredged up by my patient in such and such, like, a, as they were having, like, some sort of borderline episode. And then another person might be like, I called attention to the real relationship of me qua a, a person, you know, and them as another person who was in this room. And I said, isn't it a nice day outside? Right. And I'm like, at the end of the day, I don't really know, like substantively speaking, if you were like an alien, like floating in the ceiling or something, like a demiurge or something, an alien anthropologist, <laughs> you'd be like, Oh, this, this is just a, two people talking. And one of them is, is, is making sure that the other person doesn't fall apart or if they fall apart enough. Then they get put back together again at the end of the session. Right. And, right. and so it's the, the differences in theoretical vocabulary are, are important uh, for many different reasons and the reasons we can, you know, the work that they can be put to theoretically and otherwise, but, but also like they're about how people navigate relationships where what's unspoken or what's like implicit has a really important role, you know? So, so of course you will talk about it in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think that the, the creepiest part when I was thinking about transference for the first time was realizing that the, the way it shows up, Mm. The, or at least the way I, I could feel it show up in my mind was almost like a um, a conviction. Like a decision yeah. at some level had already been made about how I felt about this thing yeah. and it presented itself as a foregone conclusion that they are going to fulfill this role. You are going to fall in love with this therapist. You are going to be at odds with this patron at the bar. And it, it, when it arrives in your brain, the decision's already been made. It, it, it you're you're like preaching to yourself in a weird way at a level where you don't you don't get to engage in that conversation. Yeah, yeah, um, that's okay. Just that's creepy. Yeah, I mean, it, it it a word even might be like well, we'll use a good a classic Freudian word. It's uncanny. Yeah, right. Yes. You're, you're like this word. No, it's, it's it's compatible. Like, but they get like you're you're suddenly, and this is I think you, you almost we got to like reach to vocabulary that's not in the initial Freudian one to like talk about this type of stuff. But, but, and, and something we're going to talk about a lot, I think later to the extent to which we get to Klein is going to be about like this idea of projective identification mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We, and um, projective identification is a, we can, you can read as a thing that happens in certain types of transferential encounters, but also it's like a, it's, it's a, 
uh, a type of, it has the character of like a fulfillment of expectations that mm. plays out as an enactment involving two parties. It's one way of thinking about it. Right. And where it's like, uh, imagine, and I think this has happened to people kind of generally speaking, but imagine like you're, you're, you're in, dealing with someone or you, maybe there's someone you love very much. And they're like, you're going to hate me. You're going to hate me. I'm bad. I'm bad. I'm bad. And then at a certain point you get angry at them and you're like, God damn it. Stop. And then they're like, Oh, you see, you're angry at me. This proves that I'm bad. And there's some part of you that's like, God damn it. I want to like, I want to fucking yeah. smack you. Right. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and that's a, the point here is, is, is not to like, absolve anyone for hitting anyone else or be like, but, but to be like, how did you, how did this encounter happen? And why are you suddenly fulfilling it? Right. And, yep. and, and, and of course the person who's telling you that they're, that they're, they're terrible and that they don't want to be loved or that they're afraid of being loved or whatever. They're not actually, you know, like in a way that is transparent to them, like actively seeking that. Right nor are you seeking to fulfill their expectations, right? But somehow something about the, the power of the encounter, right? Or the structure of like what they're bringing to the table and your susceptibility to it um, produces that effect, right? And yeah. so, so again, this is one way to explain this thing called projective identification, but like you are identifying with their projections or they are projecting a feeling into you. And I think- what a client analyst will do or, or what a lot of analysts will do in this situation, this gets at, at sort of the, what actually you're already doing when you narrate this is they'll be like, Oh, I don't have to, this is a projective. This, this is a communication. I don't have to fulfill this. Like, you, you know, and we'll talk about this much more too in the client transference thing where it's like, Oh, I suddenly had a desire to hit the patient. Right. As I go, I, that, that, that doesn't mean that I'm, uh, I'm a bad person for thinking it. And I don't have to run away from the fact that that thought occurred to me. But to be like, oh, this is something that something is being communicated here, right? So the idea is not to think of projective identification or of certain types of transferential enactments as like a manipulation, right? But as a, again, like a gravitational pattern or a force that's being exerted on the relationship in the here and now. Really, the manipulation would be if you told the person that you were bad for having the thought to begin with, yeah, right? Because then you're forcing them into some kind of, I don't know if it's a transferent. Yeah. Uh, transferential relationship but if you if like uh, i know like in a lot of like uh very strict religious communities what happens inside of your head could very well damn you to hell forever yeah. right yeah um yeah, yeah that's interesting that's, uh, that, that this is yeah i hope we lean i hope we at some point we can really lean into the Freudian critique of christianity because i think it's spot on and one of them is like this idea that like and this is a, a succinct way to define what a neurotic is like people who are scared of their thoughts right yeah. or pe- people who can't tolerate the capacity to um People were scared of what they want, right? Or they spend a lot of time wanting something or not being sure about what they want, but then when they get it or they come close to it, they fucking fall apart, yep. right? Or they self-sabotage or, you know, or whatever. And I think that's a, that kind of like initial, that mental gesture, we can even call it a tick, where it's like, I want this thing, therefore I must be bad, right? I want this thing, therefore, like this, this kind of like immediate move between fantasy or thinking and then judgment and like self punitive judgment as opposed to is a, it's like a bad version of reflective function or capacity to reflect on yourself where it's like, if I'm having this thing happen, if this thing is popping up my mind, therefore it says something about me as opposed to it being a data point that may index something about the situation or something I can work with. Right. right. So, right. So part of what the, 
part of what I think is the is the part of the reason why these guardrails exist, like like the the, the, the guardrails of of you know you don't sleep with a patient or you don't do an enactment, is precisely to give you what a clinician should have and what a clinician needs to develop is the capacity to be like, oh, I'm not going to immediately identify with the bad object that my patient is conjuring, right? I'm not going to immediately punish them. I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm so, like, I also want to have sex with this patient. Therefore, I must be bad and we have to end the therapy, right? That would all, that would be a type of like covert collusion with the desire of the patient to frustrate the therapy, yep. right? And, and And so you have to, and what we're talking about here too, it's a difficult thing to, to think about is, is the tolerance of someone to be around someone else who is doing something like making bids for love, right? Like when someone, and Freud says this in the paper, right? And of course it's very coded with a Victorian sort of misogyny, but like when, uh, as he puts it, like, like when a woman of, 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 of good character and high mind or whatever sues for love, says she loves you, you know, it's very hard to be like, well, uh, sorry, like I can't do, you know, and, and you can't even like, and some of the things you can't, like, you can't say that it would be incoherent, but like, well, no, you actually don't love me. Right. Because of course, like they, you can't be like, there's imagine like some gaslighty thing going on here where it's it's like, well, no, you're not actually having these feelings. These feelings are fake, but no, but they are having the feelings. They're having their feelings in the register of, of being very real to them. So you have to like bracket your own desire to take it personally. Right. You have to like, no, this is not about me. Right. Or your desire to not let them take it personally. Yeah. Like if, if the right move would be to recoil your hand from theirs, like accept that that was the right thing and they're going to be wounded by it at some level or another. But you can't leave your hand limp and you yeah. can't grab their hand back. You, you're, you're, at a dilemma, you're in this dilemma where you have to pick something that, and this is, again, I think part of the, part of the coolness about psychoanalytic thinking, right, is that this depends on, what, on, on the relationship that you've developed with the patient, right? There isn't one one size fits. I mean, obviously you don't, you don't like you don't like French kiss the patient or you don't, <laughs> yeah. you, you don't like, well, that means we can get to second base. It's okay. No, you don't do that type of shit. Like, but, but it is like this thing where you can, you navigate the encounter in a way that can be, I think really depleting and, and difficult, you know? And, and I, I think it, another thing that, again, this is one of these things I think we can talk about more freely in, in, yeah. in the wild analysis space. Like it, it is the case and it's, it, it's a non-trivial number. It's actually kind of scary. I forget the percentile, but like clinicians do sleep with their patients. It does happen. Yeah. You know what I mean? And Jung, yeah, uh, yeah, Jung, Jung was, was sleeping with Sabina Spurine and then denied it to Freud, and then later he owned it. But but like there is this thing where it's like it, you you can feel the and you can map this out, right? Imagine like you're a clinician. You just you could be any of you could be a man, you could be a woman. But imagine like you're you're in a relationship that's not treating you like your your primary relationship at home is not going so well anymore, or you're single, or you're bereaving, you're you're, you're in bereavement, you're mourning someone who lost, like, or let's say you, you you've lost the passion for psychoanalysis or like passion for doing therapy, and suddenly there is this person who may or may not be younger than you, who may or may not be um, someone you would be otherwise attracted to, but suddenly they are looking to you in a way that seems loving, right? And, and they are, not only that, they're, it, they've are they really uh, cathected onto, to, to use that language, they've really invested in the process. And suddenly they're, so they're not only telling you that you are good and lovable, right? Which everyone wants to feel, uh, but that also that you are, they're rekindling your love for something that you've lost. Yep, yep. Right? Yep. And, and so the pull of that to, to transgress, and again, please, I'm not, none of this is, this is all extra moral, right? I'm not saying it's, it's 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 good. This is just saying it's like legible as a thing humans do. You can see why people do this. Yep. Right. I mean, I think I, th- I think this is also why, like, 
you know, mutatis mutandis, you can see like professors sleeping with patients, about patients, but professors sleeping with their students, right? Or, you know, um, priests transgressing with people they confess, right? These are, these encounters are, whether it's the confessional or certain types of pedagogical encounters, but certainly the clinical encounter, these are essentially pressure cookers for transference, right? And that shit gets really messy. And unless you've not only like learned to identify it, but have kind of worked through, you have the, like the capacity to not enact it, it, it can go really bad directions and part and, and hell fucking we can call into, we can invoke the, the frame of all analysis here to talk about this. Like we're talking about like one of the concerns that Freud had with, with, with this later turn where he was talking about wild analysis and this concern about the professionalization of psychoanalysis is people doing stuff like, you know, yeah, sure. Let's, let's sleep together. Right. Or let's just let, I'll give you a big wet hug and, or, or stuff like that. That they kind of like, <laughs> a wet, big wet, 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 wet hug. I don't even know. Yeah, no. I'm a very what sweaty forensic. <laughs> You should have a parapraxis, like <laughs> air horn noise. But like that there is this kind of like people were doing stuff like this, right? And I mean, like there are like, there is this, this term that somebody shows up was like the corrective emotional experience, right? Which is just like, well, you had an emotional deficit. Some, someone didn't love you in the right way at the right point. So all I'm, I'm going to be the, I'm your, your therapist. I'm going to be the mother you ever had. Right. And like, the problem is like, no, you're not their mother. No. <laughs> right? You can't right. do it. Right. But people were trying it. And so far, it was like, well, we're going to do professionalization stuff. We're going to, we're going to say certain things aren't analysis, et cetera. But like, you can feel why people are, when someone else is super vulnerable, like you have to not take advantage of that. There was a, a movie that um, Jonah Hill just produced recently. I think it's Ooh. called Schultz. Hmm. Um, and it's it's a documentary about his relationship to his therapist. Mm. And as the movie plays out, it turns into actually it's a love letter to his therapist. Oh wow! And all throughout the document, it, I, I would say I give, it look, give it a look. Give it a look. It's yeah, yeah. interesting and it is very affecting. It's very emotional, and it kind of becomes about something more like age, life, have yeah. you lived that kind of a question. Yeah. Um, but throughout the entire documentary, the the little flags were popping up for me because not that I'm passing judgment. It yeah. seems to be working. I'm not saying Jonah Hill, if you're listening, I love you. I really do. Yeah. Uh, but thank uh, you for support, Jonah Hill. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Our number one Patreon subscriber. <laughs> um, uh, they are constantly telling each other that they love them. I love you. I love you too. I love you. I love you like my father. I love you too, like my son. Oh wow! Back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And the more that I learned about transference, the more I, I started looking at that and being like, I can see the role that the therapist thinks that he's fulfilling. But event, the therapist is like 80. Eventually, he will die. Jonah Hill will live on. And now all these neuroses that he's attached to the therapist are going to be, woof, like, let loose on the world again. The, the rubber band ball is going to explode. Eventually. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, it, it's actually a pretty, pretty fun movie. That's also, amazing, yeah. So something about this, like, uh, talking about, talking or not talking about these kinds of, like, emotional connections, it reminds me of that, like, edict, especially in American culture, of no talking about religion, no talking about politics. Where you once you start talking about beliefs and structures of beliefs, yeah. it starts edging into places where conflict could pop up because of oh man. Maybe this is a half baked thought. No, no, keep going. Once you start talking about these beliefs, you start wandering into the realm of I'm going to critique your transferential position with something else that I don't share that yeah. same transferential position with. Yeah. yeah, and in that way, I'm actually cutting deeper than I realize that I am. Yeah, having that conversation. Yeah, I think. Yeah, this is an interesting thing. That yeah, I think I, I pick, I'm picking up what you're laying down. Like, and, and I think we could think about it too alongside that. Like the problem that like people don't like. There's a, a lot of things conspiring in American culture or just in like polite social intercourse in general. To like when people 
say things to take that as like necessarily immediately slipping over into an enactment. I mean, like the, and particularly this is the case with like negative affects, yeah. right? I want to uh, punch that guy in the face. Yeah, I want to punch that guy in the face, or or or, or, or you make some crack about like the president or like what you want to do to the Supreme Court, you know, and 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 then suddenly the Wait, what do you want to do? Oh my Court? god. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it, it, if there are members of the, like the FBI, like show up and they're like, "So we understand this was delivered initially in a pl- Winnicottian play space." However, uh, but but you know, like there is <laughs> like there is this kind of thing where it's it's like simply saying the thing. It, it, it's it's it, it's a type of anxiety or, or a fear or terror that's like putting things into words mean the thing is going to happen, right? And, and it. I think the the psychoanalytic, psychoanalytic impulse is no. Actually, maybe putting the things into words becomes a way to think about it instead, or or putting things into words is a way of making it not happen or making something different happen. I think that's how yeah. thinking about even psychoanalysis more generally as a system of epistemology, which yes. you guys talked about in our first episode, yeah. makes makes that dynamic make more sense. Yes, yeah, yeah. Because without without some kind of epistemological underpinning, that isn't. Without a system like something like psychoanalysis, and I'm not saying that's the only system out there, obviously. A lot of the other ones that are really prevalent today hinge on magical thinking. Where suddenly you can make that leap to, you had this idea, therefore you will do the thing. That leap becomes like way more natural, way easier to make. And uh, I guess if I'm like, say, a police officer, uh, a lot more profitable, really profitable to make that jump. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's, I I think... And I think the epistemological emphasis is key here too. Like, is another way of thinking about this, right? And this is again something we didn't talk about in the episode proper, but I think this is actually a cool way for us to like to process this. Is uh, we, one way you can think about what is going on in transference is that people have unconscious beliefs, right? And 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 uh, Jonathan Lear and his, his very good little book, his introduction on Freud, which is actually a good audio book too for people who are listening and want that. It's a really good audio book um, version. So it's, yeah, it's his introduction to to Freud from the Rutledge Philosopher series. He kind of gets into this in, a, in actually using the language of analytic uh, philosophy. Um, and here, and analytic philosophy is in like Anglo-American language-focused philosophy as opposed to psychoanalytic philosophy, though he is very invested in psychoanalysis. Well, he talks about the idea of having unconscious beliefs as one way of understanding what happens in the transferential encounter, right? And, and mm-hmm. on the face of it, the idea of having an unconscious belief, does, it, it makes no sense. Like, how could you believe something but not consciously, right? It doesn't, you know, however... If you think about the fact that you can, you, that if we read beliefs as expectations or identifications that are encoded in us or that we develop based upon our experiences and cultural predispositions, et cetera, then it makes a lot of sense to have these as unconscious beliefs and to read transferential encounters as being about the deliberate like appeals to fulfill them, but then the frustration of them and then the making of conscious of those beliefs. So like the, um, imagine like, uh, an example like the, the 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 patient who starts describing something and then they they're talking about some something that is 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 very makes them feel vulnerable and 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 unsafe or something that really gets at their core and then the the analyst like adjusts their paperclip or the paper their, their, their paperclip their um fucking like clipboard Clip or whatever yeah they, yeah they move a little bit and immediately the patient winces Right or like, and and the, and also be like, well, why did you do that? What, what's what's happening? Or, tell me, what, what were you, what were you feeling? And, and or perhaps even, and this is how unconscious communication works. The analyst will have the sudden sudden image, and I've heard analysts talk about this. Everything, the image of uh, uh, of their patient as a child being hit, mm-hmm. right? And they'll be like, oh, did you expect me to hit you for saying that? 
did you expect me to leave the room for saying that? Did you expect me to abandon you? Or, but, but I think the physical violence is a real one, right? Like where it's like, yep. it, and I think this gets into how certain types of events or relationships loom very, very large. We get really, really buried down there. Like you can unconsciously believe that a person who you tell something is going to hit you. You can unconsciously believe that this person who has power over you in this room is going to do what the other person, you know, dad or some other authority figure earlier did. Right. So there's a way in which, like, epistemologically speaking, you are primed to expect an outcome. And this, you know, you enact that, or at least you enact the anticipation of it. And what the analyst should do in that, you know, to use Jonathan Lear's sort of uh, heuristic for this is make that belief conscious. Right. Be like, so why that's not actually warranted in these circumstances. Right. Or even say something like it must be so hard for you to walk around expecting that anyone who you let your guard down with is going to hurt you. And then maybe, just maybe, hearing that will produce some sort of change if it's delivered at the right moment.